I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. Uh, my name is Jeff, and with me here is Hoy. Hello. This is episode 10. It's very exciting that we've reached the uh, 10th episode. And uh, this episode is on Roger Zelazny's Jack of Shadows. Yeah, this is very exciting. And only, uh, I don't know, 200 plus more episodes to go. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be done in no time. No, no time at all. <laughs> so the copy I'm reading and defacing with my pink highlighter is the 1972 first edition paperback with this uh, Bob Pepper cover. And Bob Pepper wasn't a name who I was really familiar with. But, no, uh, neither was I. But now that you've pointed out some of the other covers that he's done, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know who he is now. Yeah, right. yeah, we looked him up, and he, he did a bunch of the Ballantine adult fiction, Lord Dunsany covers, like King of Elfland's Daughter... And Don Rodriguez. Right, right. And needed some Ted Sturgeon covers, you said? Or yeah, Ted yeah. Sturgeon. Yeah. Uh, really, really uh, beautiful paintings. Yeah. Um, certainly of their time. They're, they're definitely sort of 70s, not quite psychedelic, but late 60s, 70s, sort of uh, sort of a flat, water painty kind of look to them. Yeah. And on this, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, yeah, it's not a super representational cover. We've got a guy with a hood. He's kind of like holding like a glowing sphere. But then there's like his shadow behind him. But in the shadow, you kind of see this like imagery that's kind of super science in the background. I have the ebook of the Chicago Press, Chicago Review Press version, which just has a sort of photoshopped guy in a, uh, in a robe. It's sort of purplish and black. Um, how about the uh, back cover copy on that one there? Jack of Shadows, an overpowering adventure of a world half in darkness, half in light. The earth no longer rotates. Science rules the day side of the globe. Magic rules the world of night. And Jack of Shadows, Shadow Jack the Thief, who broke the compact and duped the Lord of High Dudgeon, who was beheaded in Eglis and rose again from the dung pits of Glive, who drank the blood of a vampire and swallowed a stone. Shadow Jack walks in silence and in shadows to seek vengeance upon his enemies. Who are his foes? All who would despise him or love the Lord of Bats. Smeg of the jackass ears, the colonel who never died, the Bortian and Quasar, winner of the Hell Games and abductor of the voluptuous Avene. One by one, Shadow Jack would seek them out and have his revenge, building his power as he goes. And once his vengeance is obtained he would come to terms with all others who are against him. He would unite the world of High Dudgeon, destroy the land of filth, and bring peace to the Shadow Guard. But to accomplish all, Jack of Shadows must find Colwinia, the key that wasn't. Um, key that was lost? Yes. Sorry. The, the, the bottom of my, uh, of my paperback yeah. uh, is a little torn from having removed a uh, price tag on it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's the key that was lost. So... My version is trying to really establish the uh, literary credentials of this book. I guess again, Chicago Review Press. So it says it doesn't mention Avine's voluptuousness. No, no, no Avine's voluptuousness. <laughs> it says, in a world full of light, half darkness, where science and magic strive for dominance, there dwells a magical being who f- who is friendly to neither side. Jack of the realm of shadows is a thief who is unjustly punished. So he embarks on a vendetta. He wanders through strange realms 
encountering witches, vampires, and finally his worst enemy, the Lord of Bats. He consults his friend, Morningstar, a great dark angel. He's pursued by a monstrous creature called the Bortian. But to reveal more would be to spoil some of the mind-boggling surprises Jack of Shadows has in, sp- has in store. First published in 1971 and long out of print, Jack of Shadows is one of fantasy master Roger Zelazny's most profound and mysterious works. Nominated for a Hugo Award and a Locus Award, this dark and haunting classic deserves it to take its place on the same shelf as imaginative masterpieces of Borges, Kafka, and the Strugatsky brothers. That might be a bit much, but I see what they're going for. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so real quick, before we go on into the library and discuss this book further, we will uh, go over our Hygaxian word of the day. All right. Which today is... Aquiline. Aquiline. Aquiline meaning like an eagle. And the usage of the word is on page nine. His hair was black, his complexion swarthy, and his features somewhat aquiline. This is uh, describing Jack? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And one thing that I think is kind of cool about the word aquiline, and we had uh, Sumerian the other day as well, right. is these are both, uh, there's aquilonia right. in, in the Conan universe. And it's just, it's really illustrating to me how cool... Robert E. Howard's usage of coming up with uh, the names of places really was. Because mm. I feel like it's really easy to kind of just take a word and turn it into a place and make it sound really cheesy. Right. But like Samaria and Aquilonia right. are these places that are, um, and I know this isn't what, what this episode is about, yeah. but um, but I, I think it's really kind of cool that, you know, he takes these words uh, that we kind of find in this kind of literature and turns them into these names of places. Sure, sure. It's it's just familiar enough that it sort of evokes some kind of feeling. And even if you're not, you know, remember, don't remember exactly what the definition of the word aquiline is, it's something majestic and eagle-like or something like that. It yeah. sort of just kind of rings that way. So, um, yeah, I think that was uh, definitely one of Howard's strong suits is to give something that just echoes mm-hmm. that, you know, exists beyond. It doesn't just feel like, oh, uh, you know, here's the, uh, you know, the Kingdom of Eagles. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which so. Aquilonia clearly is not. But right. yes, I, I, I agree. Totally yeah. evocative. Okay. So moving on into the library, uh, Hoy, what did you think of Zelazny's Jack of Shadows? Hmm. Um, my first impression was that it owes a lot to um, the Dying Earth books. Um, sort of this weird alien landscape, possibly post-modernity uh, um, with its own rules. Um, I don't um, but maybe more um, straightforward, not as ornate in terms of the language, and not as baroque. Um, but I don't necessarily um, don't know enough to know if Zelazny had read Vance. I don't necessarily want to take any credit away from Zelazny for this creation. Um, I do know that he um, essentially wrote it in one draft and with no revisions. And so I'm not sure exactly what's tickling over in his brain when he was doing it, but it's, it's quite powerful. I mean, the imagery is powerful, especially like the dung pits of Glaive where Jack is resurrected after being executed unjustly. And it takes him, I don't know, decades to crawl out of this muck. And, and you know, he keeps on getting shoved back in. And, you know, he slowly regains his powers. You know, he vampirizes a vampire in order to get his strength back. <laughs> um, so in terms of just like sheer sort of moodiness, I think this is a terrific book. Um, Jack is not a... Uh, lovable protagonist in any sense of the word. He's, no. he's an anti-hero at, mm-hmm. at, at best. Um, and there's a case being made by some people that he's actually the villain of the story mm-hmm. and that the purported villain, the Lord of Bats, is actually the person who's trying to keep the world stable and Jack is just willing to tear it all down for the sake of his revenge. Sure. Um, 
And then there's that weird interlude on the light side, which is basically our world in the 19, early 1970s, late 60s, <laughs> um, which we'll come to later. Um, uh, but I am glad Reddit read it. And, and it does move quite along quite briskly. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's some really powerful stuff, like when he's fighting the sort of the, what the, the rock, mm-hmm. telepathic rock, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, his sort of philosophical conversations with the Morning Star, who's clearly, you know, Satan or Lucifer mm-hmm. um, imprisoned there, fated to watch the world as it changes around him. It's of something just, just welled up in Zelazny, and he had to put it out there. It's, it's the feeling I get from this book, you know. Yeah. And it's not mediated by any kind of, um, you know, oh, you know, maybe this is too weird, I can't put that in, or something like that. You know? <laughs> so, sure. So. Yeah, I loved this book. I really, really enjoyed reading it. It was the first time that I had really encountered a protagonist like this. I have since read Elric. Hmm. Um, at the time of reading Jack of Shadows, I had read Kujal, so I, I had encountered him before. Hmm. And um, and definitely, you know, Kujal, Elric, Jack of Shadows, there's kind of this um, kind of common theme of, of the antihero, of the uh, the character who we really shouldn't be rooting for, but, we, but most of us totally are rooting right. for. right. Um, the difference with, I think, Jack of Shadows with these other two is um, I feel like Jack of Shadows is almost kind of the Goldilocks between the two because uh, Kujal is like a little too buffoony. Right. It's and, just straight up rogue Daffy Duck kind yeah, of uh, absolutely. wily coyote kind of type. Yeah, yeah just a, a chaotic, evil Daffy Duck. Right. And then uh, and Elric is maybe a little too um, – I mean – I, I adore Elric, yeah. but I'm saying on, on that spectrum, he's far more on kind of the mopey, broody, um, kind of like teenager writing poetry, uh, uh, writing bad poetry about the blackness of the heart side. Sure, sure. Very emo. Yeah. And uh, Jack of Shadows is, I think, between those two spectrums, kind of like right in the middle in a sweet spot that I'm really enjoying. Although I also adore Kujal and I adore Elric. So anybody who's listening, please don't take any of that as me right. dissing on either of those two because I adore all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I see that. I see. Um, I mean, his desire for revenge is all out of proportion to, you know. I mean, nobody wants to be executed and be resurrected in a pile of dung and take centuries. But he essentially is still alive, and you know, people knew that was him. So why, you know, go through this elaborate, decades-long plot to like destroy all his enemies and throw the world off its axis? Um, sure, but the know. same thing could be asked of Kujal. It's like you know, Kujal, like he's sent all the way to the other side of the world twice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and both times, I'm like, what's 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 really drawing you to the side to get your revenge here? Right. You know, like, why not? Like, things are good for you over on the other side. Stay there for right. a while, I guess. Uh, I guess the greatest <laughs> offense is against their self-image and their pride. Yes. Um, and so exactly. I guess we can all identify with that at some points in our lives. You know, that, sure. you know, that guy who cut us off in traffic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So. Yeah, he's absolutely a man who is completely driven by this desire to get what is rightfully what he sees is rightfully his. Right. And uh, part of that is the Lady of Veen. Right. You know, the Lady of Veen is this uh, this woman who was, um, who's, ha- what, how did they describe her? She is born of darkness and light. So she's um, half of the world of darkness, half of the world of light. I guess we should real quick explain what we're, what we're referring to right. for those who haven't actually right. read uh, the right. story. It's referenced on the back of the book that right. I read. But basically what's happening in this world is the world no longer rotates. Right. It's, it's tide-locked. It doesn't rotate. Mm-hmm. And then there's a dark side and a light side. Absolutely. And the, the dark side is completely ruled by magic, and the light side is completely ruled by science and technology. Mm-hmm. 
and, and people don't cross over. They're aware of the other side, but they generally don't cross over. So Jack of Shadows is exceptional in that he can cross the boundary and mm-hmm. function on both sides of this boundary. Yeah, and what's interesting about it, too, is the way in which each side fears the other and doesn't understand the other at all. Uh, there's this, this really great moment where, um, where Jack of Shadows is chatting with Morningstar, who Hoy had mentioned earlier is kind of this, like, Angel, or how, how would you fallen just... angel. I mean, he's Lucifer or Satan, but yeah. he, he's poised right on the boundary of the dark and the light side, so he can sort of see both sides, I guess, right? Yeah, and and he's talking to him about the center of the earth and about stars, right. and he's saying that like we know that the center of the earth is fire elementals, mm-hmm. but they tell us on the other side that the center of the earth is this giant machine. And we know that the stars are actually very reachable and we can use it for magics. But they say that the stars are, uh, are incredibly far away and have no life on them. And Morningstar is like, yeah, all of that's true. Uh-huh. But, but all of you guys are t- completely correct. You guys just aren't able to see it the way the other person sees it. But all of those things are true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just occurs to me now, and maybe it's just how simple-minded that I've you know, been on this you know, project, is that this really was written in the heart of the Cold War. And, you know, so... Uh, you know, these two sides who are just facing each other across this boundary and this, like, mutual incomprehension of what the other side is all about, you know. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's been so long since the Cold War ended, I guess, for many of us. I mean, even though I grew up towards the tail end of it, that, you know, maybe just like, oh, yeah, right. That, yeah. Are you implying that fantasy fiction can be used as allegory? Um, sure. <laughs> it's dangerous. <laughs> I've do, never heard of such a thing. Do we want to go that far? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm not even saying that this is literally what he was in, had in mind, but I mean it was certainly in the air, right? Any kind of dichotomy, absolutely, right? So, and that's what's great about uh, fiction in general is it's 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 something that we can all kind of add or add our own experiences to it, and also uh, we, we're able to uh, I guess pick up on influences that maybe the author himself wasn't even necessarily aware of the fact that that's what he was writing, right? Right. You or know, at least even, not trying to emphasize to any great degree, but now in retrospect, we say, oh, you know, that's right. Yeah. yeah, or even with, like, writing that I've done myself, there have been times where I've written something not thinking at all, like, oh, I'm, I'm actually writing about this theme or this, this experience in my life. But then when it was over and in the rereading of it being like, oh, that's exactly what right. I was doing. I was really, like, exploring this thing that had happened to me. Um, so, yeah, I think even, like, you know, who knows what Zelazny's intentions were on the surface or underneath Right. Have, and as he said, he was very clearly right at one draft, no revisions. So he was accessing that you know level of him that was let him put the words on the page without mm-hmm. too much mediation. Um, you know what you said remind me of a professor I had in film school back in the day, an old Israeli guy, very crusty. He goes, "Just to remember, material is always smarter than you are." <laughs> <laughs> so, which That's I guess, great. You know, which I guess to take mean is that you know whatever you end up with is probably more authentic than what you intended to put out there. In yeah. Sense. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel like a lot of the reason why I loved Jack of Shadows as much as I did is I think also the reason why I love David Lynch and don't necessarily love uh, Steven Spielberg. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you have two very different filmmakers. You know, Steven Spielberg is somebody who really likes to spell everything out for you and then spends the last half hour of the movie uh, assuming that you didn't understand everything he had just spelled out for you and then just hammering it into your head and making you walk away from the film knowing exactly what it was he was trying to tell you. Where David Lynch is somebody who, when he makes a film, um, he, it's not super clear what it's about. And you can walk away from it having your own theories about what was going on. And David Lynch is fine with that. He's not spelling everything out for you. And a lot of the stuff that you walk away with um, having theories about 
may or may not be true. Maybe David Lynch doesn't even know the answer to some of these right. things, and that's fine. All right. Well, cue all the angry E.T. fans with the pitchforks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jurassic Park was fun. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but that's what I thought was really fun about Jack of Shadows is there's a lot of stuff in here where the reader is really kind of given permission to draw their own conclusions, and everything isn't super spelled out. Um, and even the very end, like the very last sentence of the book, uh, which I don't know if we necessarily need to say what, 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 what that is, it, um, it just leaves everything completely open uh, right. for, for the reader to kind of right. decide for right, themselves right. what Jack's was going on. Jack's fate, maybe. Yeah, um, absolutely. Having said that, it's not that the language is obscure. The language is very clear and straightforward prose. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just the meanings of stuff, mm-hmm. right? So it's not particularly psychedelic. You're not going to bounce off of this book because of the prose. Oh, yeah. And it's not being like weird for weird sake or anything. It just it leaves a lot of it's it's like in Dungeon World where they say draw maps and leave blank spaces. Mm -hmm. I feel like this book is drawing maps and leaving blank spaces. You know, it's giving you a lot of information, but it's also leaving a lot blank. And like a really a really, I thought, clever usage of that was um, where is that? So on page 18 to page 19, he um, runs. He runs across this guard who's guarding a rain pool, and this is happening in the dung pits of Glive. And then he says um, he obtained the dozing guard's sword, and since the man had no further use for it, Jack supplied himself with bread, cheese, wine, and a change of clothing. <laughs> now, the implication, since the guard had no further use of it, is that Jack had just murdered the guard. Right. But like, Zelazny doesn't need to tell you that he murdered the guard. Like, right. maybe that's even too crass to mention. Right. Uh, but well, he, he just kind of like cutely mentions that, like, oh, the guard has no further use right. of them. Well, especially since in this case, it's not um, a, a existential struggle for him to, you know, he describes stuff when it, it's it's truly important like the yeah. struggle with the again I want to forget the name of the rock creature that you know is telepathic I don't know learned. that it had a name right. I think it was just kind of referred to right. as like the as, as the rock right and that to me is almost the most compelling threat I've seen in a lot of the fiction that we've oh, read yeah. so far in terms of like the actual level of uh, struggle and terror that scene is amazing yeah um, so yeah um, so yeah he's elusive but not to be completely cutesy about it. It's not like we've deliberately leaving out information and making you guess. It's just no. like, he's just like, okay, this is what I think is important. Let's move on. And, and he doesn't overly spell everything out. Right. Yeah, and I, and I, and I do really appreciate that. But going back to the, the moldy, the, the kind of the rock that's covered in that like, pink mold, that really is one of the most uh, threatening and uh, terrifying bits I've read in any of our appendix in literature so far. And it's bizarre because you explain somebody, it explains to somebody what the scene is, and it sounds kind of silly. Right. You know, uh, Jack is wandering through the dung pits of Glive, and I guess I can quickly explain why he's there. In the very first section of the book, he's murdered. He's right. beheaded. Right. For trying to steal something from that belongs rightly to the Lord of Bats or the one of Lord of the Bats minions. Exactly. Like and in doing so, he's going to be able to marry the, the Lady of Veen, right. uh, which is what he wants. Um, but then he is beheaded. And doesn't get to marry her. Um, and instead the Lord of Bats marries her. But what happens is to Darksiders, to those who are born of the dark side, um, when they die, they um, they go back to the dung pits of Glive, where their body slowly reforms. And this can take years to happen. Under stacks of corpses. In yes. This, in this, you know, it's basically like a concentration camp scene, you know, after, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, and then you're and once you do finally have your body back, 
you're then just kind of left to wander the dung pits of Glyve until you can reestablish yourself or get back to wherever your your kingdom is. So he's on this journey trying to get back to wherever, uh, trying to get to where he wants to go. And he encounters this big rock that's covered in this pink moss or this pink mold. And it's it has this like psychic pull on him. And um, as he's approaching the rock, the rock is trying to get him even closer. And he kind of ends up in this like, five or six page psychic battle with this with this rock. Right, where he keeps on trying to walk around and in each orbit of the rock he gets pulled closer. It's like a spiral and it's like a, you know, he knows that at a certain point he's going to lose. It's a, it's a death spiral. And even that's spiral. great too because yeah. he loses his battle against it psychically and the rock makes him walk towards him but then he does this little clever thing. He's like, okay, I'm, I know I'm losing the battle against you but instead of walking directly towards you, I'm going to walk at you from an angle. <laughs> so thus creates the giant slow spiraling <laughs> Towards the rock, mm-hmm. um, which which I thought was really kind right. of clever. If you and just fun. try to describe people like what this guy, you know, can't get away from a rock. Right? <laughs> but, but the the prose, the the way it's it's um, talked about, you know, the uh, the perspiration appeared on Jack's brow as step by step as he fought, and step by step he advanced in counterclockwise spiral towards that which he summoned him. He was uncertain as to how long it was that he struggled. He forgot everything: his hatred, his hunger, his thirst, his love. There were only two things in the universe, himself and the pink boulder. Mm-hmm. Right? That- yeah, and the utter alienness of it is also yeah. what's amazing because, right. you know, you you put somebody up against a werewolf. Right. And, you know, sure, like that might be scary or whatever, but you put something up against something that like we really haven't encountered before and can't quite comprehend on some level. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a lot scarier. That's why Lovecraft is so scary. Yeah, and this is, uh, and we don't have no idea. It just wants to... F- feast on him but what is he getting out of it you know psychic energy is he getting knowledge of the universe what is it why does it want to destroy him um is it just purely just what it does just like you know any natural predator would do or is it or is it actually malignant you know um all this is kind of unknown to us and it's it's just very strange and compelling scene um and again, just on the surface of it, you're like, a pink rock, what's that? You know? <laughs> sure. And Jack is eventually able to get away from the pink rock because of his powers, which I guess we haven't really discussed yet. So, um, Hoy, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Jack can do? Basically, he can step in and out of any shadow. He can hear things that are in shadows. Am I missing him? Those are the main um, things. Yeah, whenever anybody speaks his name while they're in shadow, right, he, he can, can, hear, he, he can, can hear, hear that. that. Right. But yeah, his, his biggest power is that he's, he's like some kind of a shadow mancer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, they don't use a term that tacky, yeah, but right. <laughs> right. but uh, but yeah. Whenever whenever he is in shadow, he can use the shadow to either like step into this kind of alternate dimension, right. or he has these other kind of like unspecified shadow powers. Right. And um, some people would say, although I guess we'll talk more about it when we talk about its relation to D and D, that the hide in shadows ability in D and D is supposed to be basically not you just oh I'm standing in a dark spot. It's quasi mystical the way mm-hmm. it is in this book where yes. you, you literally can just disappear into the shadows as opposed to oh yeah it's a little dark here you know let me just crouch under this table All right um, so that's why it's actually hard to activate in D and D yeah in a sense um, and I'm forgetting the name of the movie um, it's a it's a Korean movie about a guy whose identity whose like memories or identity is stolen uh, old boy or? old boy thank yeah, you yes. Yeah. Um, and if I recall correctly, it's in Old Boy where he is able to kind of do this like hide and shadow thing in his jail cell. Right. Is that right? Or am uh, I thinking, that might be. Yeah. Or yeah. I, have you seen Old Boy? I have not, but that might oh. be. Or uh, Leon when he, uh, 
the professional when the people are, he's trying to you know he's taunting the people who are coming after him and you can hear him speaking out of the shadows and you never see him. Oh, I don't. Rem- I, it's been so long since yeah. I've seen Liam. Ages. Um, but anyways, yeah. So and 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 that stuff like at that point you're yeah. far beyond realism. Right. Um. But in yeah, and and that's exactly what the thief class is doing, and it's exactly what Jack of Shadows is right. doing. Um. But it's interesting that Jack Shadow is is no mere thief. I mean, he's definitely not a pickpocket, or he he's at a more grandiose level. He's really collecting these artifacts of power and, and things that, you know, he doesn't even really need any of this stuff. It's it's for his sort of pride and uh-huh. ego, you know. And he has this uh, castle shadow guard, which basically exists in a pocket dimension where he has all of his treasures that he collects, and nobody ever else gets to look at them. And you know, the treasure could be anything. It could be an object. It could be a person. You know. Um, so he's really sort of, um, you know, quintessentially selfish, but grandiose in his selfishness. Absolutely. There's this really funny scene where, um, and it's also, I mean, it's, it's pretty tragically funny, but, um, where, where Jack meets a dragon and, uh, you know, Jack's hanging out with Morningstar and this dragon comes flying by and, uh, he takes a little rest by Morningstar and the reason why the dragon's flying by is he likes to live in the dark lands because he doesn't he can't sleep with all that sunlight. Right. But he likes to fly over to the sunlight so he can eat all the sheep and stuff. Uh, but he takes a little a little rest and is chatting with Morningstar when he noticed Jack and he's like, "Hey, you're that thief that stole my horde." And Jack's like, "Well, it's my horde now, ha 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 ha." And uh, so the dragon tries to kill Jack, but then of course that backfires because right. Jack goes into the shadows and he works his shadow magic right. and like in the end he like he he ends up like you know, getting the, getting dominance in the situation. Um, but it was just really funny just kind of like watching Jack uh, just kind of banter with the dragon and brag about having his horde now. And you could tell that like Jack isn't getting getting anything about have, about uh, out of having the dragon's horde. But I guess probably the dragon really isn't either. Right. <laughs> just like... Right, but it's definitely... Uh, here's a uh, sentence here to say. Because um, he really thinks of himself as something other than he thinks of himself as a power in the universe. I think that's, um, I forget which, it's relatively early here. He goes, um, and he knew that despite the pains of this journey, it was the wound in his pride that stung the most. To be taken so easily, handled so casually, dismissed so abruptly. It was like the swatting of an annoying insect. They did not treat him as if he were the power that walked the Shadowland, but rather as if he were a common thief. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really all about ego in this case for him. Well, and he's basically a demon lord. You know, right. it's, it, it's my impression that all of the dark, dark siders have their own kingdom. Right, and their unique powers and spheres yes. of influence. Yeah. And most of them are tied to a geographical location. So, like, this specific section of land is where I have my power. Where Jack's, Jack has no such land. His is in the shadows, so his power is, is fleeting, but because of that, he's able to travel around the world. That's I, I think one I think that's one of the reasons why he can go to the sunny side right. is that um, his yeah, not in Queens by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah not sunny side Queens not the sunny side of the street uh, <laughs> although his powers would work in both of those areas as yeah, well quite well <laughs> um, yeah so I mean it's interesting it's 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 the damage to his pride that uh, that instigates almost all of his other stuff because you know yes it's terrible but he's basically immortal so what's you know a decade here or there yeah know? and he's He's essentially 
as much of a monster, as you say, a demon, as much of a monster as anything else. You know, in part of his recovery from the demon pits, he comes upon a vampire that wants to vampirize him, but he needs the energy more, so he basically sucks all the life out of the vampire. Uh-huh. He says, poor vampire, you know, but I need it more than you. Um, so, you know. And again, it's 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 handled in such like a hand wave of a paragraph right. that we don't even exactly know what really happened there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it kind of doesn't matter because right. like he's just like, yep, I encountered the vampire, and yeah. now it's right. <laughs> now I've got the power. Right. Um, but you know, he's not totally inhuman. I mean, he has affection uh, in his own weird way for like old. Is it old Rosie? The uh, yeah. Oh the, yeah. Yeah. So there's this character named uh, Rosie who, at one point in time. Uh, was this uh, beautiful woman he met at a bar or something yeah, like that? Yeah, barmaid of yeah. or chambermaid of some sort. Yeah. And he promised to come back to her. And uh, for one reason or another, he was caught up in different things and never got around to it. And uh, now she's like an old crone who is like uh, very embittered. Right. Basically surviving as a beggar from place to place and cast out. And then he encounters her again. Like, it's the very sort of tail end of her life. And then, Oh well, yeah. You know. I, I, I don't think she's a beggar. I think she's, 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 she's become a witch. Right. She's a witch who lives on the dark side. And right. she likes, uh, like, I think, believe, I believe she serves, serves the Lord of the baths or something like that. Or she's watching over some area of yeah. the, the dung pits of Glyve. Right. Well, I think there's another part where there's callback to her and he, he sort of, but anyway. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, um, we're thinking of two different parts of the book, yeah. but same character. Right, but uh, but absolutely, he is he has a lot of fondness for Rosie. Yeah, and is it in the sense of someone has it for I don't know a pet or you know someone that they had a, a fling with at one point, um, or is it deeper? Is he actually capable of any fundamental human feeling? Is one of the questions that's sort of left open in this book, right? Because uh-huh. he has this great love, the Lady of Vine, but he's also incredibly vengeful for her towards her since she did marry the Lord, you know, the Lord of Bats. Yeah. Um. So when he tries to win her back, is it really because he's in love with her or is it really just because, you know, this was a thing that belonged to him and was taken away from him, you know? Well, and I think what's neat about this story as well is it 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 explores kind of a cliche theme in a very non-traditional and interesting manner because what it does is um, it talks about how the Darksiders may or may not have a soul. And one of the things that Rosie brings with her at one point is... Uh, she encounters, she seeks J- uh, Jack out and brings him this this small, like, brown stone and says, this is your soul. And she says, I found it at the Dung Pits of Glive. You left it there. Kind of as the story goes on, Jack has been getting more and more twisted and wicked and has been doing worse and worse things. And uh, with less and less remorse. And so she brings him back this object, and he doesn't want it. He takes it, he throws it to the ground, and it shatters. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it looks like he has destroyed his soul, but instead what it does is it's kind of released the soul. So now it has like this vaguely like human-like form. Uh, but the problem with that is now if he dies, right. he's it's, not going to be reborn again right, because his soul is free. Right. So he's not going to be able to come back again unless he and his soul reunite. And the only way he can do that is to consent to having his soul reunited right, with he him, really doesn't want. which he refuses to do because right. he does not want to have any any feelings about right. the stuff that he's done. He right. knows that this will probably destroy him. Right. You know, this his plot is takes decades. Right. He goes over to the light side, essentially lives as a normal human being, a professor in a university, yeah. while, so he can get access to the computer or the mainframe uh-huh. <laughs> to make all these calculations about how he can destroy the dark side and literally spends like his, a, a career there, like 10, 20 years there. Yeah. Um, so this is how much, you know, 
bitterness and hatred he can carry inside in, in himself but what's uh, funny too is he can also have his like his little uh petty like uh professor quarrels right. with like dr quillian right, right. <laughs> yeah. you know perfect little microcosm of academia you know <laughs> does he go to have like cocktail parties and does he you know sleep with one of his fellow professors or not or is she attracted to him this kind of stuff like that you know and then he um he sicks the uh the, the abortion is hunting him down which is this uh, horrible twisted creature that the is created in the labs by the Lord of Bats and actually comes over to the light side, hunts mm-hmm. him down, and he actually misdirects the abortion so that it kills his pr- academic rival. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, like, wonderfully petty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, another scene that I loved so much, and now I'm not remembering that's before or after. I think it's before he goes to the light side, mm-hmm. which is when the Lord of Bats traps him in mm-hmm. the crystal. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Um, so, right, and it's all white in there because there's no shadows at all, right? There's no shadows in there at all. And... Um, so the Lord of Bats captures him and puts him inside of this of this of, of this jewel, and um, and the Lord of Bats comes into the comes into this like little area where mm. where Jack is being stored for who knows how long it's been, but Jack now has like, this big giant beard. He's been in there for a very long time, and um, and there's this kind of funny moment where Jack is asking, he's like, where where, where am I? And he's like, see this jewel around my neck. That is where you are. And then Jack's like, well, how can I be there? And how, how can you be here, too, if it's also around your neck? Right. And he's like, yes, it is a very good trick. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of leave it at that. Yeah. But um, he does end up using his magic to trick himself out of, uh, yeah. out of that situation as well. Um, so I kind of forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> um, something about the pettiness and how the rivalries. and yeah. Absolutely. It's, 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 an, it's, another, it's another ding to his ego. Right. Um, and just also just kind of a very fun, creative scene. And we get a lot of these stories where, like, you kind of go from one little scenario to the next. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to explain why sometimes that really works for me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it feels really sloppy and doesn't. Like, mm-hmm. why does it work for me in The Hobbit and in um, – we haven't got to Eyes of the Overworld yet. But mm-hmm. why does it work for me in The Hobbit and Eyes of the Overworld? But it doesn't work for me as much in, like, uh, Three Knights and uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions. Right, right. That's a good question. I think because this one is – I mean, although the light side is basically our world and it's described, you know, very similarly, this one doesn't rely on it creating the illusion of a real world, mm-hmm. right? So we, we accept that. It's not just – it is a setting, but it doesn't feel like it's just a hollow, um, you know, backdrop for this to happen. And sometimes you feel like, oh, there's no um, – what we know that this can't exist – and we're not worried, concerned about such as the world building, like what is the economy of the Darksiders and such like that. Um, but it's compelling enough in mood that we feel like, okay, we can go with this. Yeah. Whereas some of the other ones are like, oh, okay, like, you know, he just had to get on a jet ski to get from here to there. And, yeah. and that sort of, you know, doesn't jive with the sort of quasi-medieval story feel of this fantasy story or some mm-hmm. other problem like that that sort of breaks our suspension of disbelief. I think this is so, you know, outre and weird to begin with yeah. that that we don't have to worry about breaking that. I would also add to that that I think that part of the reason why this works for me here is Jack really does have a massive character arc. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jack who we have in the beginning of the novel is not the same as the Jack in the middle of the novel and it is not the same as the Jack in the end of the novel. Sure. And all of these little things change him and affect him and change and change his relationship to the world around him. Uh, they're not just kind of a, a series of meaningless encounters. Where Hol- Holger Carlson uh, in Three Hearts and Three Lions, although by the 
by the end of the book, he knows who he is and he knows what his destiny is. My sense is that that character at its core hasn't really changed any. Right. Um, And that maybe this is a discussion about what the difference between is between a sort of dramatic character and an iconic character. Um, So uh, a a way to very sort of... uh, oversimplify this as a dramatic character, as you say, someone who has a character arc maybe comes into knowledge of themselves and their relationship to the world. Um, you could use all the stuff like the, what's, you know, the hero's journey, although I don't really believe in that. But um, whereas an iconic character basically is true to themselves and then by being true to themselves, they sort of correct some imbalance in the world. So you could think of, I don't know, Superman. Superman doesn't really change as opposed to Spider-Man, who's this kid, you know, who has to learn all this stuff. Um, I know we're getting farther afield from no, the this is great. Stuff, but, you know, another example of... I was uh, talking about David Lynch and Spielberg, so right. please continue. <laughs> another example of, and this is where people have fallen down recently, although I love the Daniel Craig, James Bond movies, is they're misinterpreting James, uh, Daniel Craig's James Bond as a dramatic character who has a character arc, whereas James Bond is really an iconic character. James Bond should just be James Bond, and the world's all out of whack. So Jack of Shadows is, in essence, a sort of dramatic character and an interesting dramatic character. Um, There's nothing wrong with iconic characters, but the whole Carlson is just not that interesting as an iconic character. Yeah, because Conan is an iconic character, and I adore Conan. Right, Conan is clearly an iconic character. Um, Even in books, you can have both. If you... Read the you know we'll get to the Lord of the Rings later, but Aragorn is clearly iconic, at least as we know him, because we don't sense any of his journey. He's already a, a fully formed character, whereas Frodo is dramatic. He comes into his you know or Bilbo for that matter, and they come into their knowledge of you know that they do want adventure or you know but that they also want to return. So they develop. Um, so Jack develops. It may not be in a way that makes anybody particularly happy, especially yeah. all the people around him. And he do- is capable of feelings of, I don't know if remorse might be too strong, but regret. But it doesn't stop him from doing these horrible things that he wants to do anyway. Sure. Um, but so there, he does have, as you say, an arc, and he wants to do something which in this case ultimately ends up meaning that he wants to basically set the world spinning on its axis again and basically destroying the powers of both the light and the dark side. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's you know, he wants to change the world. Oh, yeah. Um, by not, breaking it. By breaking it. Um, he's not trying to set anything right in the sense of setting it back to its status quo. Yeah, burn it down. Right, he's burn it down. Um, whereas some of the other characters do have a status quo that they're trying to bring back. Yeah, that's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, and um, we should probably at some point transition to this as being on the Appendix N and how it relates to gaming. Right. So um, I would ask you, why do you feel like Okay, so on the on, on the appendix end list for Zelazny, hmm. it says Jack of Shadows, comma, Amber series, and then does it say at all? Um, it does. I, it must it does. because you have more yes, books on the list. You're right. Yeah. It does say at all. Yeah. So, um, but Jack of Shadows is the only novel that is specific. We have one novel, one series, and then a list of kind of read whatever else you want. Right. But why do you think Jack of Shadows is the only? novel and the first thing that's specifically cited for Zelazny? Um, well, frankly, because, I mean, as, as horrible we made Jack sound, he's actually cool. Oh, yeah. Right. He's so, really cool. Cool. So as an example of what a player character could aspire to, you know, is to the level of cool in terms of, like, you know, being able to affect the world around them, right? Yeah. Uh, and have powers and all those things like that. So he's he's 
you know, and his powers increase over the sto- course of the story. So it is weirdly aspirational. I mean, you know, that, you know, essentially he's leveling up. Throughout That's the true. Of the That's story. a really good point, which uh, is not something I feel like you see that often in Appendix N, but it is absolutely happening in right, this novel. Right, right, because Conan, I mean, Conan does develop. He's a youth and, and he becomes more powerful and he becomes king. But in essence, he's always indomitable, strong warrior. You know, he comes up against greater opponents, but you know, you know, okay, oh, here's he, at, here's the young Conan, and he's only a level one fighter, and here he is at, you know, um, but we definitely see a ramp up, uh, at least in the course of the story. He may have already had these powers, but in the course of the story of the powers that he's able to ex- access and his ability to affect the world around him, because at first he's just trying to steal this gem or whatever mm-hmm. this thing is at this basically the equivalent of a dark side country fair, yeah, <laughs> right, and then he wants to then literally knock the world off its axis by the end of the story. Although, I guess a, a, a counter to that is, I mean, he does do that all once he manages to find Colwinia, the key that was lost. Right. Um, so did he level up or did he just find like a really epic artifact? Um, I think he had to level up in order to find the artifact. Okay. Right. Okay. So I'm just going to split the, you know, <laughs> right down the middle. Uh, but um, so I think there's that. I mean, and, um, you know. Uh, again, there's always an argument about does the thief belong in the D and D game? Aren't all D and D player characters thieves or like? But this is exactly a, a case for a. I mean, he's clearly a magician as well, but clearly a case for something that is not um, your standard wizard in a pointy hat. Uh-huh. He's not your mighty feud warrior. Although he's quite a, a skilled swordsman. Yes. Um, but I would argue that this is actually a really great argument for the idea that you don't need the thief class because here you have essentially a wizard right. who has really great thieving skills, right. much like Fafford and Conan or warriors with great thieving skills. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we could argue that in retrospect, but maybe they didn't know how to mod a wizard you know, and have the niche protection to make a, a wizard or a magic user play that role. Yeah. Right? So, But without a doubt, Hide and Shadows, right. I think, really clearly came from here. Right. Um, and, and just sort of the visual, this is a very visual book, right? You know, the shadows flickering and all the stuff like that. And uh, um, so trying to think what else would be um, uh, quintessential. I mean, certainly the adversaries are so all very, you know, f- you know, fascinating and they have their own motives. So that would be a good case of, you know, oh, here's how we develop, you know, the antagonists yeah. in, a, in a narrative, um, especially a campaign setting. Or but even a one shot, you know, it doesn't have to be. Raw, I want to eat you, or whatever the villain is. The villain has his motives, and this is why they keep their castle, their stronghold, and um, you know this is what you need to take out of it to destroy their powers. Sure. So, um, yeah, because although we, you know, sure we we briefly mention a vampire, we have like a one page or two page scene with a dragon. This isn't one of those Appendix N novels that has just like a huge list of all of the monsters from the Monster Manual that this creature that that this character has encountered. Right. Uh, so in some ways, it's not as obvious an inclusion as others on the list. Um, but yeah, certainly I can, I definitely think the thief class clearly came from here. Um, you know, or at least, uh, is a strong pillar of that. Cause here, let's yes. talk about Kugel and, yes. you know, um, Gray Mouser and some of these other yeah. characters, but yeah. So yeah, but I think the coolness of the idea of like the character themselves thinking like I'm cool and I'm better than this world that's around me yeah. is something that, uh, you know, it's hard to see a low level play, but at a certain point say like when you reach mid-level fifth or sixth, like, oh, I'm just really starting to affect this world. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a power in this universe. Sure. Um, and especially when you have played versions of D&D that have the domain game, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what is Shadowguard but a domain? What is High Dungeon, the Lord of Bats castle, but a, yeah. you know, a level 14 character, level 20 character's castle and domain, right? Sure. So, um, 
And there's a lot of things that you can take from this and use in your games today. You know, for example, I know in Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's this whole um, this whole make your monsters interesting. Right. Don't just throw another orc at them. Right. And this is a really great example of make your monsters interesting. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of stuff. The, 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 the few things that he does encounter really are quite alien and bizarre. Right. When he goes to the center of the earth and he finds this like giant kind of formless black black entity of like energy that may kind of have limbs but it's not quite clear and he steps forward and it's probably going to like like rip him limb from limb but then he says a name to it right. doesn't tell us what the name is but once he speaks this name he now has control over this being mm. and can now like travel with it through right. the underworld right. So you've got like the make every monster unique right. thing happening here. The sort of the relentlessness of the abortion that comes after him. Yes. That's a really fascinating, horrible creature that you almost pity in a way because yeah. it's so malformed and, you know, has really no other purpose but to do this, what it does, and has no choice but to do what it does. Sure. Um, so it's not it's not malicious for its own sake. You know? yeah. yeah. So Another thing that's interesting is I think the the – the consequences and repercussions of magic and not in the more traditional way of like, oh, a spell can go wrong or, oh, a spell can change me. But like there are um, there are scenes where he's walking through the dung pits of Glive and he decides not to um, cast a, a, a magic that, that would allow him to see better because he knows that casting magic in the dung pits of Glive will just attract enemies. Attention, right? Yeah. 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 And there's also a moment where he's trapped within the jewel and um, he does cast a spell. The Lord of Bats instantly appears, being like, "What are you doing, casting spells in here? You know that I can, I can uh, sense your any, any any kind of magic that you're right. producing." And that's actually part of Jack's plan. Like he right. makes that he does that intentionally. But what I think you can take from that for your own games is the idea of creating these places where, when your wizards do cast magic, it has an effect on the world around it. Sure. It sets off some kind of an alarm. It, it, it summons some kind of... As long as you're, like, in an environment where that makes sense. Right. Like, if you're in a highly, char- like, magically charged place, right. maybe casting magic has uh, has consequences like that. Sure. Um, I also think that the idea of a character who has a plan, a plot that they're trying to put in motion, but it's not perfect. It gets diverted from time to time. But, again, it's, you know, he knows that there's a certain time to strike and a certain time not, you know, not, you know to prepare. And so that's very appropriate in, you know, a classical D&D game where there's no challenge levels where you know, okay, I have a 50-50 chance of beating this thing, right? It's it's uncertain what's going to happen. So the yeah. level of the uncertainty, you know, very clever, uh, but doing the best with the imperfect information is, is, I think, a feature of sort of older style role-playing that's being brought back forward. It's not just like, okay, uh, you know, I've got enough characters here that's 50-50 chance that we'll be able to beat the Red Dragon. Sure. And then we retreat. And the idea of letting your players really do whatever their characters think that they might want to, or pursue whatever goal they might want to pursue. Right. Because looking at Jack of Shadows, perhaps if we want to pretend that this was like a, a game of Dungeons and Dragons, the, the dungeon master may have set up this game where, you know, you've 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 died, you're in the dung pits of Glyde, and it's your job to get the Lady Avene back. Right. But the player is like, yeah, I, I can do that, yeah. but I'm more interested in destroying the world. Like, right. I want to go to the center of the earth and, like, just really just tear this whole thing down. Right. And you're like, well, um, I didn't really prepare for that, but uh, okay. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know um, there's that whole talk about a lot of uh, game masters talk about taking that role from improv. Yes, uh-huh. and. Never yeah. negate. Just, just say, oh, yes, and, or... Yes, but in some cases. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I, I think that's useful. In a lot of cases, I mean, there's always that joke about, uh, you know, player characters being murder hobos. You know, maybe the player characters aren't the heroes. You're playing, I mean, we don't necessarily want to make, we don't want to encourage people to play out their, like, worst, most murderous impulses at sure. the table. We're not, you know, here to be, um, you know, psychotherapists necessarily. But, um, you know, it is interesting. Maybe they aren't the heroes of the story, and so maybe their antagonists are nominally the good guys. We can present that and, and then sort of throw that back in them. And they're like, oh, what are we doing? You know, and, you know, they can go with it, mm-hmm. or they can say, you know, maybe we need to change the direction of what our characters are doing, you know. Um, you know, so that's as interesting to have them potentially be the villains um, and not just be, uh, you know, the sort of like, oh, we're on the forces of good and everything we do is automatically good because we say that we're already on the forces of good. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> you know right? Totally. You know, um, so I think there's, there's plenty of that. You know, I think if you want to play an, an entire anti-hero campaign, that could get a little worrying and depends on, you know, um, you know your, your overall perspective of what you're trying to get out of gaming. But... You know, I, I'm generally a pretty positive person, so I, I don't think I would want to be in that mental space all the time. Sure. Of, of you know, running a game with all evil characters, you know. And it's a tricky line, and I think you really need to know the people you're playing with to really kind of pull that off successfully, because it's really easy to cross the line yeah. at the gaming table. Right. Um, you know, especially if you're going to... Um, I, I think it's just generally a good idea to always leave sexual violence out of, right. of, of gaming. And I feel like some people who may be um, a little less experienced with gaming who are trying to do an anti-hero game right. might um, be more willing to embrace something like that. Right, right. In the name of edginess of some sort. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think, you know, and I, I absolutely adore Lamentations of the Flame Princess and all these like really kind of dark, edgy, and at times sexual uh, games that are out there. I feel like it really takes a certain level of savviness and experience to pull that off in a way that's not just overly upsetting right. and not actually interesting or fun. Right. You have to know your table, I think, in that case. And if you're playing in a sort of more open table convention environment, um, I mean, I've never played with an X card, but I can understand why that came up because you really don't know who you're playing with, right? Played with what? Uh, the X card. Are you familiar with that concept? No. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I Yes, but please, uh, go ahead and talk about it. All right, so I've never played with an X card, but basically this was an innovation that, uh, you know, came up well after I started role-playing, I guess in the early 2000s or late. Basically, you can have a card that has an X on it, and basically you can hold it up at any point in the game if you're getting into some territory that's, like, truly uncomfortable with you, but you don't have to explain anything. You say, I'm holding up, oh, this is a a scene of rape or, you know, murdering little children here. I'm not comfortable with that. And so the GM then has to accommodate that by changing direction in the game or, you know... I might be oversimplifying again because I have not played with that at the yeah. table, but I think it's a valid concept. But I would never want to play at a table with that. You know, I wouldn't either. And I, f- I feel like that makes a lot of sense for certain gaming environments. Yeah. I also feel like that also might potentially open the door to just kind of shut down lots of. I, I don't know. It, I don't. Right. I don't know it's a very tricky it. area, and it's yes. obviously a big debate in the in the whole gaming. Universe. But I can see environments where that would be a really, especially in a public gaming environment where you have very mixed people who right. don't know each other and don't know what their limits are. That seems like that might be a fine thing in that kind of an environment. Right. And certainly if you're playing a, a game that's known to be edgy, uh, you know, Lamentations or, you know, something like uh, Cult, you know, back from the 90s, like that, you should sort of lay the groundwork and say, we're going we're gonna to get into some dark territory here. Um, so, you know, XYZ might come up. So if you're not comfortable with that, I'm just letting you know right off the bat. But I'm not going to change the game for them, but I'm letting you know what XYZ might come up. Sure. Um, so, you know, anyway, I assume that we're all grown-ups here. 
Um, yeah, so anything else that we want to say about this book that, uh, you know, really jumps out at us or in terms of both gaming or the narrative? I mean, I feel like I could keep talking about this book for a while, but I think, you know, it, we probably are running out of time, but this is a really fun book. I'm really glad that we read right. this. It's pretty short, too, so I think it's definitely worth, you know, slipping onto your list at some point, even if it's not like, oh, I have to read all these big classic ones, you know. And it is a classic, but, yeah. you know, it's, you know, I have to read this 400-page tome. This is 180 pages. 140 pages. 140 pages. So. Yeah. It's a fun, quick, easy read, and it absolutely belongs on the Appendix N. Um, or let me rephrase that. I, I, I feel like I can absolutely see why it's on the Appendix N. Right. Who am I to say what actually belongs on it? But <laughs> uh, Watership Down. Why is Watership Down not on Appendix N? <laughs> exactly. So before we wrap up, though, um, we, we've, we've yet to decide whether or not we actually want to have a formal email section of our podcast. But we did get an email recently from Eric Hammerstrom from Tacoma, Washington, that we thought was interesting that we would like to share. Um, Hoy, would you like to read that? Sure. Uh, and this is with Eric's permission. So, uh, dear Hoy and Jeff, thank you so much for your podcasts. I'm really enjoying your discussions and all the wonderful, wonderful information you provide. As an academic, I'm also delighted that your book list can serve as something of an appendix and syllabus, and I've been buying and reading the titles down the list. I'm curious, again, as an academic, my field is Buddhist studies and not literature, if you have any good recommendations for scholarly or general historical works on science fiction slash fantasy to read alongside these books. Do you primarily use the internet for your research, or are there other sources you found particularly helpful? Uh, thank you, and keep on. Thank you, Eric, for the email. Uh, you know, I personally have not really read any academic books on the subject. All of my research has pretty much been done online. I use the Internet Speculative Fiction database quite a bit. Uh, but mostly I just kind of Google around and see what I can find out. Um, how about you, Hoy? Um, I work on the show notes, uh, and I usually start with Wikipedia and ISFDB, which you mentioned, and spiral out of there. Um, if there's anything topic-specific, I look for that. But I found uh, Blackgate.com is a good website about fantasy and science fiction, especially if you look under their Vintage Treasures tag. Um, and as for books, I, again, I haven't read any scholarly ones, but uh, a couple caught my eye, which I haven't read yet. Uh, which are um, The Evolution of Modern Fantasy from Antiquarianism to the, Bal the uh, Ballantine Adult Fantasy Series by Jamie Williamson. That sounds really cool. Right, which is quite expensive, though, because it's academic press. Okay. It's like 90 bucks or something. Oh, like so maybe your library will have them. Another one that looks interesting is A Short History of Fantasy uh, by Farrah Mendelssohn and Edward James. Um, and one I've used quite a bit is from the 80s. It's out of print, but it's pretty available uh, use. It's called Fantasy, The 100 Best Books. And actually, this is pretty cool because it's edited by James Cawthorn and Michael Moorcock. Oh. And about um, a good chunk of the uh, Appendix N, uh, I would say maybe 20 of the Appendix N books show up on there. And there's usually like a two-page uh, essay by these oh, guys. Oh, cool. So um, that's a good spiraling out point from sort of talking about it. And obviously, we also have sort of D&D-specific resources, which, you know, we can mention later on. And then actually Eric wrote back with us during this exchange and mentioned a couple books that he found. And can you mention those, Jeff? Yeah, he um, he showed us that there's a book called The Historical Dictionary of Fantasy Literature from 2005 by Sta uh, Stableford is the editor. And then um, the other one is The Cambridge Companion to Fantasy Literature from 2012. Uh, Edward is the editor. And uh, Eric's going to take a look at those and let us know what he thinks. But yeah, listeners, if you guys have any suggestions for good um, academic works on fantasy fiction from this era, please let us know. We'd be happy to share any recommendations that you have on the air. Yeah, that'd be terrific. We are always in this quest for more knowledge. So <laughs> Absolutely. So um, along those lines, uh, the next two episodes we'll be doing, uh, episode 11 will be on John Belair's The Face in the Frost. 
And episode 12 will be on Michael Moorcock's The Stealer of Souls. Really looking forward to those two. Yes. And uh, so please, if you get a chance, go to iTunes, give us a rating, leave us a review. That helps out a lot with getting us uh, more visibility on iTunes. Uh, you can also email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at at underscore... At appendix <laughs> underscore n. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, don't forget to look for us on Meetup. Uh, it's the DCCNY uh, group. If you want to try to join the Meetup, uh, the reading group in real life. Uh, yeah. We meet about twice a month. Uh, so just check the schedule. See what, what's coming up next. Um, again, on our website, appendixnbookclub.com, there's a list of the books that are coming up and resources on how you can find some of these books. Um, most of them, I would say about half an hour are readily available, and the other half you'll have to dig a little bit in terms of the used market. But uh, we hope you can follow along with us uh, on this journey again. So anything else you want to add, Jeff? I think that's it. Thank you so much. Great. See you in the stacks. Read on. <laughs> <laughs>